Hi everyone, this is Devin from Fluvio and you're listening to Embracing Erosion, the podcast that lets you inside the heads of product marketers, investors, and go-to-market leaders who tackle changes head-on and turn them into competitive advantages. On this episode of Embracing Erosion, we had on Derek Osgood. Derek is a former marketing exec turned founder. He is building Ignition, the collaborative go-to-market platform, which is helping product and marketing teams get products to market faster and more effectively. Prior to founding Ignition, he was an early hire at Rippling, where he stood up the product marketing function, and he helped scale the company to $20 million in ARR. As a product marketing leader from startups to major brands like PlayStation, Derek has launched over 100 products, and he's generated over a billion dollars in revenue. He is absolutely a product marketing and go-to-market expert, and he's now building the platform he wished he had along the way. This conversation was wide-ranging. Um, quick note, I am a small investor in Ignition, and Fluvio sort of partners and uses the platform. Uh, I believe very strongly that what they're building over there will be a product that all product marketers will use in the years to come, and really all different sorts of go-to-market teams from product management, sales, et cetera. Uh, it's gonna be a platform that becomes ubiquitous with product marketing. This is a really interesting conversation because he really, he, you know, one, we'll, we'll chat about the platform and how it's useful for product marketing marketers and product managers, but we also talk a little bit about what it's like being a founder, um, some of the challenges, and in particular, he presses me on, you know, how you think about setting a vision for a company and product and actually why that's important. So, you know, I think there's a lot to learn from this. There's a lot to learn from Derek. And uh, I was really excited to, to be able to have him on the show. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Derek, welcome to Embracing Erosion. Yeah, thanks for having me, Devin. We're super excited to have you on. So uh, where do we find you today? Uh, I am in uh, L.A. these days, and it's uh, atypically rainy. It's dumping on us, but... Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah. All of California, <laughs> pretty much, right? Yeah. it's uh, there, there were like big thunderstorms in San Francisco, and my co-founder was like locked in the house because they had flood warnings. But uh, yeah, it's, it's going nuts here. <laughs> Wild. Yeah, that's that's abnormal. Um, well, again, yeah, thanks so much for, for coming on. Obviously, we've had a couple of conversations over the last couple of years. I'm excited to chat about Ignition and everything you're working on. So I'd love to just sort of dive right in. If you could give us your story of how you came to co-found Ignition and really why you're so passionate about product marketing and technology. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I've been a product marketer for most of my career. You know, I, I, early on in my career, I was at PlayStation launching big AAA games. So I've done the kind of B2C thing, um, you know, and then I've bounced around a variety of different high growth startups, um, you know, most recently at Rippling, uh, running product marketing teams. And, you know, historically, like I've, I've always been passionate about the discipline and, you know, it's really fascinated me, the, the you know, depth to which you can get into storytelling figuring out how to position products and you know there's there's a lot of like cool stories throughout my career on on moments that made me really fall in love with product marketing but you know in, in aggregate I've, I've just always wanted to continue being a student of the game when it comes to product marketing and i think um with ignition like basically i i had been at Rippling and, you know, we were a small product marketing team supporting 12 products and it was excruciatingly painful managing, you know, the go-to-market process and how we were actually launching and introducing all of these, these new products and features that we were building at a really, really rapid pace um, while, you know, effectively coordinating across all the different teams within the company. And, and I've tried, you know, building, I, I've been refining my frameworks and processes for launching products over the course of 13 years. And, and you know, I've, I've got a pretty tight system at this point. And I basically built that, you know, kind of hacking it together with a bunch of different tools at Rippling. And it worked really well. And I, I realized that, you know, for my entire career as a product marketer, I've never really had any tools and, and nothing had really ever been built for product marketing teams. And 
the role is just consistently forced to kind of pigeonhole itself into all the different tools that cross-functional teams are using, despite the fact that it's really kind of the nexus and the hub of the way that broader marketing teams are operating. And so, you know, I just realized that there was a big gap and a need for a platform that allowed product marketing to, you know, first launch products and manage go-to-market processes more effectively across all the different sub-disciplines that exist within an organization, but also to just do their job on a day-to-day basis. And so, you know, I essentially set out originally to just build a nice communication tool for, you know, communicating updates internally when you're launching new things, but that's grown into this big end-to-end platform where we're now supporting everything from the research stage all the way through road mapping at the product level to through to product or through to the actual go-to-market planning process and then the communication and measurement during and post and after the the launch process itself. So we've we've kind of grown into a lot bigger thing than what we originally set out to be, but um, it, it's been a fun journey. You touched on the fact that uh, it's really an end-to-end solution. So would love to sort of get into details in a bit around product and um you know all the different capabilities you're building within the platform it is interesting that you know product marketing is that sort of connective tissue between marketing product and sales and yet it doesn't seem like many companies have focused on building software purpose built for for product marketers um i get why do you think that's been the case historically yeah i think it's it's a really challenging problem to solve is why so you you basically have product marketing there's a lot of reasons why on the outside, it doesn't really look like a very venture backable audience to build for. Because for one thing, product marketing is scoped very differently at different companies. And so, you know, it takes a lot of different like shapes and sizes. So it's hard to really narrow into what is the specific pain point that's shared across all product marketing teams that you can build, you know, a, a big business around. Um, the other problem is that, you know, because that's, it's hard to zero in on that one shared pain point, it's pretty tough when you talk to pro- when you look at product marketing to see a large market size because there's not that many people with the title of product marketing out there. Sure. But there are a lot of people who do the product marketing job. So a lot of times you have product managers, a lot of times you have brand managers if you're in a consumer facing business. But what they're really doing is they're doing product marketing, but they don't have that title. And so if you look at LinkedIn, it looks like a small, a small audience, but the reality is it's actually very large. And the other problem is, is it's such, it's a role that touches so many things that in order, if you follow each of the individual threads within product marketing, like you start targeting one pain point, you realize that that one pain point is connected to all of the other things that product marketing does. It's like, if you're, if you go out and you say, Hey, like we want to help with physician or we want to help with uh, conducting competitive intelligence and like collecting research on what competitors are doing. You're like, great. Now suddenly you're in the sales enablement game too. And you have to build all the way mm. into sales enablement because you need to actually get that information to those cross-functional stakeholders and you need them to be able to action it. So I think in order to really build for product marketing, you have to build this whole big, like all encompassing platform. And that's just really hard to do. And, you know, I, I think it takes a product marketer to build it. It's, you can't actually spend as much time as you need to to do effective customer development and product research to understand all of these different ins and outs. The only way that you can do it is if you, you've actually been in the role for, you know, a decade plus. And, and there's just not that many product marketers who have gone out and started companies. Right. You, you touched on a couple of really interesting things. Yeah. One is if you're to look at it from like a VC standpoint, product marketing, maybe, you know, it doesn't seem to be as big a role as we, both of us know it's becoming. So you can look at product management and look at the tools and, you know, software that's being built for product managers. There's a ton. I mean, there's a huge ecosystem now. Well, product marketing, I think is a fast follow to product management. Like I, I believe product marketing is certainly on, on its path to becoming as established as the product management role. Um, and then the other thing, to your point, it's hard. Product marketing it probably has the widest purview out of any role I've seen within a tech organization. You touch everything. And so where do you even start to build a product? And I know, to your point, you, you've you sort of built this end-to-end solution, uh, and I think it's in an amazing place right now. And then I, I know we'll touch on this a bit, but you're beginning to think about, we've built this huge end-to-end solution. How do we start segmenting it? 
and how do we make it useful to different folks in um, in different departments. So we'll we'll get on that in a bit. Um, but first, we at Fluvio read your product marketing manifesto. Um, I believe it's on your website. I won't read it all here, but I really think everyone who's listening to this should uh, give that a read. Can you give us a quick sort of voiceover uh, of, of what your manifesto details and why you think product marketing has changed over the years? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, to your point earlier, like, you know, I think product marketing is on the track that product management was 10 years ago. Like product marketing, if you were to ask what a product manager does 10, 15 years ago, a lot of people couldn't tell you. And, you know, it was a, it was a fairly nebulous role that took a lot of different forms in a lot of different companies. And, didn't really have any tools built for it, but it was so central to the way that the companies that were really using it properly were operating that, you know, it was very clear that it was going to be a critical role down the line. And I think product marketing is in the exact same spot right now. Um, but, you know, our, our manifesto, like basically the, the, the big thesis is, look, like if you look at the last 20 years of marketing, Basically, there, there have been a ton of arbitrage opportunities that have existed because the dawn of the internet brought with it so many new channels and there were so many little like arbitrage opportunities within those channels around playing, fiddling with targeting, fiddling like gaming the algorithms that you could really lean into just rapid experimentation and growth and just continuously testing a whole bunch of stuff and throwing it against the, the wall and seeing what stuck. And I think that that led to this rise of the growth function as kind of like the predominant role that in most marketing teams. And I think you're starting to see a reversion to the fundamentals of marketing, which is really where product marketing sits and shines. Um, because all those channels have started to consolidate, you now have like really two dominant ad platforms in Facebook and Google. You start to see Amazon, Apple pop up, but you know, say we have four of them. You really only have a couple of channels that now every single company on the planet has adopted and are starting to compete on. So the only real way that companies can effectively compete in the market is through better positioning, through better storytelling, through better customer insight, and being able to drive really impactful launches that actually break through all that noise. And it's more important today than it ever was because you have... 30,000 things launched per year and you have 1.5 million app releases happening every single year and you have 500,000 events every year. So you have all that noise out there in the market and all that stuff's growing like 30% year over year. And in order to actually break through that, you have to drive really effective go-to-market motions, which is where product marketing is coming in. And that's what they're, they're really focused on. And to do that, like there are all sorts of problems that exist within a company. Like the, the, the primary way that you solve for that is by building a really effective, repeatable go-to-market motion where you can turn every single thing that your company is shipping, every single thing that your company is doing into a really powerful marketable moment. And in order to do that, you need to have very clear cross-functional communication lines. You need to be able to get information from the strategic planning center, which you know in many cases is product marketing and product. You need to be able to share that with context to all the people who need to actually go and action those plans. And you also need to be able to build a really clear source of truth for those people to then go and actually consume that information. And you need to be able to do all this stuff quickly enough that you can actually do some of the research that informs the planning processes, which is really hard in a world where you have you know, product teams that are operating in an agile motion, and then you have the go-to-market process, which just by virtue of the way that it works, almost has to be a waterfall motion. And marrying those two things together is really tough. So, you know, we our, our view is that the only way to solve for that is you really need to build a single platform where you are managing all of your launches and is a source of truth for any cross-functional team to come in, understand what's happening, when is it happening, and what's the context that's informing those plans. But that makes it really easy to push that information outwards to all the cross-functional teams that need it. Um, and you know, our, our goal is also to make it really easy for those product marketing and product teams to collaborate together because inevitably they live in different systems. You have your roadmap that you need to then marry to your go-to-market roadmap. And so you know, our, our goal is to connect those two things together really tightly. Great. So I, you know, I love the 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 background story. Um, you know, when you were at Rippling, sort of you were piecing together these processes and you started to build a platform and you talk about how product marketing is sort of going back to the fundamentals, sustainable growth models, 
we love that obviously here at Fluvio, like no more gamification of, of launching products. Um, can you give us an example of like a walkthrough of how a product marketer would be using Ignition today? Yeah. And maybe, a, maybe a product manager as well. Cause you, you talk about, obviously there has, there's a tight integration between the two. Yeah. It's, it's pretty important. Like to have kind of product and product marketing at minimum be integrated together. Um, you know, whether it's through an actual integration that connects the roadmap to Ignition or whether they're actually doing roadmapping directly in the product. But if you think about like from concept all the way through to post-launch within Ignition, basically, you know, the way that it works is we have feature idea boards where customers can nominate, vote on, discuss new feature ideas. You can then actually translate those into a roadmap item. Your product team can basically do their roadmapping directly in Ignition, or you can integrate with a tool like Jira or product board if your product team is already using something else for their roadmapping. You'll then take those roadmap items and then you can create a launch directly from them. And that launch, when it's created from a roadmap item in Ignition, it, we actually inherit all of the different um, context that's appended to that roadmap item. So you can basically build repurposable personas, repurposable co competitive battle cards, a um, bunch of different objects that basically exist across different launches and across different roadmap items. And so all that stuff gets inherited by that go-to-market plan. The product marketer then is able to use our competitive research tools and our customer research tools to automatically track a bunch of details about every competitor that's relevant to that launch. So you can track company-level data, like how, how fast are they growing, what's their revenue. You can track recent news about them, snapshots of the website to see how, the, how their uh, messaging is evolving over time. Um, you get SEO data on what they're ranking for so that you can help to refine the messaging that you're creating to target some of those opportunities. Um, and then on the persona front, you can basically conduct pricing and packaging research, customer development research, understand what channels people are hanging out on straight from the product. They're basically prepackaged surveys that we send out um, based on best practices. And so you collect all that context. And when you actually go about planning your go-to-market motion in, in Ignition, we have frameworks that are based on type of launch, tier of launch, budget, when, what your timing is. And you, we have a co-pilot flow where we will actually cascade out a launch plan for you, where we'll structure all the documentation you need, the asset plan that you need, based on that asset plan, what tasks need to get completed. And all of those tasks and assets are also based on the channels that you're going to end up using. So if, for example, you're running social ads as part of this launch, we know that that means that you need a couple of different assets, a couple of different tasks to get created and completed. So we'll populate those into your, app, into your project plan. And all of that stuff is then centralized. So you have all your doc, all your context in the form of research. You have all of your plan documentation. You have all of your asset management and then all of your task management living directly in the platform. You then have really nice dashboards that you can communicate all that internally with. And you can push all that information outwards to cross-functional teams in very modular fashion. So basically like each of those different things, whether it's an asset or if it's, for example, your messaging module, that can be shared independently with the different cross-functional stakeholders who are involved in the process and we'll push that straight into an email or a Slack message. Um, so it makes it really easy for that, that product marketer to basically create their whole plan and then pulse outwards updates to the cross-functional teams that need to be involved in the process and need to consume that information. Um, and then, you know, post-launch, we have some nice measurement tooling where we'll allow you to conduct retrospectives and, and track performance. But um, basically, you know, the, the end goal is that a product marketer can come into Ignition and literally take a product from either a roadmap item or even earlier all the way through their launch process, communicate everything, and then after the launch, understand exactly how it impacted the business metrics that they care about. Yeah, there's so much I love about, about that process. Um, I think... What's really exciting is so much of what product marketers do, and, and to some extent, product managers, their work sort of like sit, they sit in silos. And so having this central platform for that, making sure that it's usable and like injected into the right work streams as you're launching products um, and working with, with sales, marketing and product, it's, uh, it's something that definitely just doesn't exist today. So, yeah, so, you know, so many product marketing teams, they, they build these beautiful persona decks and they have so much just valuable content in them and nobody ever opens them because right. 
they're just completely disconnected from the actual planning when they're at a, at a tactical level, you know, trying to figure out, like, how do we launch this thing that we built? So, you know, they, they yeah, do they're an afterthought. Work and it never happens, and it never yeah. forms the work that's happening. That's right. It's, it's always an afterthought. A lot of the work we do is try to make sure that all these companies are surfacing that strategic input into all of the the work streams, including road mapping. Um, but it's, it's difficult to do that without sort of like a change management or, or platform that automatically in, injects it into their workflow. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've chatted about how Ignition is uh, helping companies with their go-to-market model. I'd love to hear a little bit from you as a founder, what's Ignition's go-to-market motion? Like, who are you targeting? How are you positioning your product? How are you thinking about pricing? Yeah, for sure. So it's funny because, you know, I, th- I think a lot of people, they look at our platform and they, they immediately think like, oh, it's project management tool. And that's really not what we are. Like, you know, we position ourselves as a, as a go-to-market platform. We're fiddling with the terminology of like go-to-market operations platform. But, you know, as you heard in my description about like what we do, we are really trying to embed tools that help you actually do the work involved in go-to-market, not just track and document it. So, you know, we, we try and deposition ourselves quite a bit from project management. You know, I think if you're, if you're equating us to anything, like we're probably a lot closer to like roadmapping tools than anything. But um, our, our audience is really product marketing teams primarily. Um, you know, we, we sell first and foremost to, you know, kind of mid-market to enterprise product marketers. But we have a ton of like solo PMMs at smaller companies that use us as well. And that's really the beauty of, you know, having a platform that's designed around pushing information outwards instead of forcing everybody to come in and collaborate directly in the tool um, is that it enables, you know, like a single product marketer to actually extract a lot of value from it. So, you know, we, we are pretty industry agnostic. You know, it's, it's funny because like as a product marketer, my whole thing is focus and identifying a really, really tight ICP and like a very specific niche that you're going to go after first. And, you know, I think when we talk about who our audience is, it's because we have this big giant bundle platform, we actually have multiple different audiences. And so we have a segment that's, you know, the down market solo PMM. We have, you know, kind of the up market PMM who's really struggling with cross-functional alignment. And then you have product teams that are struggling with actually the, the build process itself and how do we build a roadmap that creates more visibility for all of our cross-functional stakeholders. So, you know, we, and, and we tend to be pretty industry agnostic. Like we have companies that are CPG companies that are launching physical products. We have, you know, entertainment companies like film studios that are launching, you know, movies and TV shows. We have, um, we also have your standard tech companies. So we have a bunch of SaaS companies on the platform as well. So, you know, we're, we're, we're fairly agnostic. It's really just about like, do you have a go-to-market motion and how complex is that go-to-market motion? And, you know, does it feel like something that you need better alignment around? Pricing is also updating. So like we've been doing some work on our own pricing and we didn't really touch it from beta all the way through now. So we used to just be like one single price for the whole platform, charging on a per editor basis. It was a little confusing to people because they were kind of perceiving that they needed to you know, overhaul their whole process all at once in order to use us. And also they were perceiving that, you know, they, they really needed all of the people within their company to become collaborators to really get value out of it, which wasn't really the case for a lot of our most successful users. And so we're actually migrating to a, an a la carte pricing model where we're actually going to charge for a go-to-market product, one that's, you know, a product management product where you can do all of your road mapping uh, and then launch measurement as a separate add-on and then research and insights as a separate add-on. So, you know, we're basically making it so that it's easier for you to buy the bits and pieces of Ignition and then, you know, bundle them together if you want. Um, and we're also migrating to a usage-based model. So you're getting unlimited editors, unlimited viewers, all the collaborators you want. So your whole organization can take advantage of Ignition and we're just billing you on a per active launch basis. So it's just based on the number of things we're launching at any given time. So, you know, we've been, we, do, we are constantly iterating on our go-to-market and, you know, we've been... Uh, playing around with, you know, what, freemium versus free trial. We've played around with a bunch of different pricing models. We're, you know, constantly refining who our ICP looks like. But um, that's, as any product marketer knows, it's an evolving process. And so, you know, we, we just try and keep really close with our customers and continue, you know, optimizing that for the, for the best possible structure. Yeah, I was going to ask you, how often are you sort of reflecting on, on data and the pipeline and, and listening to prospects and customers and adjusting your go-to-market, I think, the example you just articulated shows that you're you're able and willing to make really significant changes 
to how you're you're pricing and presenting and packaging the product. I guess you know you have the benefit of being sort of a nimble small team, and I think technically the product is still your platform is still in beta. So I guess how do you think about that in terms of how mature the product is? Does that give you some leeway to make quicker you know alterations to to your go to market? Yeah, I mean, we we have purposefully kept the like beta label on the product for pretty much the whole last year. And, you know, we we have been very diligent in phasing our rollout of the product. You know, initially with an alpha to a couple of very very close design partners, and then you know gradually through closed beta and then a more open beta over the course of last year. Um, and you know, I think it gives us leeway to be able to build a lot of stuff and have customers, you know, understand when some of that stuff is not in a fully polished state. And so, you know, we basically were working through that for most of last year. The product's now reached a point where it is fully stable. It is like very usable at this point. And, you know, realistically, we're well beyond what a company would typically be calling a beta. And, you know, the product does so much that, you know, it's, it's really, we're even past the single product company stage where we're really at a multi-product company. And so, you know, we're, we're actually doing our V1.0 launch uh, in the beginning of February. So um, we're, we're migrating out of that. And I, I think, you know, it has allowed us to be able to be more nimble and to be able to make some of these foundational changes without anybody really raising too much of a stink over it. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's, made people much more willing and forthcoming with feedback as well, because they're like, look, this is a beta. This is amazing. I get to help shape the product into the thing that I really want. And so, and we're, we're going to continue allowing people to do that forever. But, um, you know, it's, it's just allowed for, uh, I think a much tighter feedback cycle between us and our customers. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it absolutely seems like you value speed and making decisions. Um, I, I ask all my, my guess this question, uh, do you have a process for making decisions? Obviously what we're talking about is in particular to Ignition's go to market, which, you know, there's others involved, including your co-founder in that decision. But I'd love to hear just your perspective. Like what is the process you put your mind through when you're trying to make uh, a difficult decision? So we, it's funny because we, before we ever even started the company, we actually documented a bunch of process that we wanted um, down the road. And I think, you know, we have a very, very structured model for decision making that we will probably eventually start to put in place once the company starts to scale. And, you know, it's not three of us in a room making decisions. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, uh, you know, we, we do very much value speed. My, my goal is make a decision faster. And if it's the wrong decision, just have a process for rolling it back. And I think, it, you know, yeah, I know you came originally from Amazon. I know, uh, you know, Jeff Bezos made famous the, the like what type one and type two decisions and, you know, type one decisions are the ones that are really hard to roll back and type two, two decisions are the ones that are really easy to roll back and type two decisions, you just optimize for speed type one decisions, you optimize for thoughtfulness. And, um, I, I think we, you know, generally try to loosely apply that framework, you know, when we are, for example, this pricing decision, we spent weeks, you know, and weeks in our time frame is like the equivalent of years <laughs> in, in many companies because we, you know, the, the pace that we operate at, we spent weeks and weeks debating pricing and gut checking it off of customers and trying to collect as much feedback as we could about, you know, whether this was the right move because, you know, it felt like something that once done would be a pretty significant investment and fairly challenging to roll back. Whereas, you know, with most of our product decisions, we're like, we're trying to make those decisions in real time over the course of, you know, at most an hour, like we'll have a, we'll pop on a call and have a debate about it. And if, you know, we have data that supports doing it, then, you know, we'll try and make a decision. But I think we try to optimize for what is the thing that have, that carries the most upside. Like at this, at this stage of company, you're just looking for what are the things that you can do that are potential 10x wins and anything that's, you know, just a small optimization, you shouldn't spend a lot of time debating. You shouldn't spend a lot of time even doing, and you should really be focusing on what are the, what are the things that carry significant upside. And, you know, is, if the downside is not, it's going to kill the company, then it's probably the right move to do it. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we just try and kind of like keep that in the back of our heads. I, I wouldn't say that we have a structured process for decision-making right now. We do, you know, some light kind of road mapping ice prioritization when we're building out products to, you know, determining like how, how impactful could this be? How confident are we? It's going to be impactful. How much effort is it going to take? But 
um, you know, we, we try and keep things a little bit more nimble than that at this stage. Um, so we, we only really apply that to some of our bigger features. Right. Yeah. You're referring to the one way door versus two way door and that gets, you know, surfaced in every single Amazon doc review. Yeah. Frankly, you know, having worked with now dozens of companies on, on making go-to-market decisions, no one seems to lean enough into the fact that most decisions are two-way door decisions, meaning you can come back from them. You can reverse them. Of, yep. of course, to your point, you should, you should be thoughtful. You should have a process around how you roll things back. But ultimately, I feel like so many people are fearful and they think of decisions as one-way door. It's, it's really rare for a one-way yep. door decision to come up. Yeah, even even this pricing update that we're making, it's a significant engineering update. So, yeah. you know, it's, we're, we're committing a large amount of time to updating that stuff. And so it's not easy for us to roll back. But the reality is, like, if we wanted to roll it back, we could probably roll it back in a couple of weeks. And so, you know, it's, it's really not that big of a change. Um, and, you know, operating from a place of fear just means that you're missing out on opportunities. So, yeah, 100%. Goals, like, move fast and capture opportunities where we can. Yep. We see eye to eye for sure on that one. So I'm curious, like as a founder, I want to hear more about how you think about laying out the vision for Ignition. Like how do you balance caring and focusing about building now and presenting what you have now versus envisioning and speaking about the future? And I guess the reason I'm asking is because I recently, I don't want to say I'm struggling with this, but I'll often ask like, I'll often be asked, um, you know, where do you see Fluvio at three, five years from now? And I stopped answering that. I, I have an idea and, well, I, I feel pretty strongly about where we're going to be in, in one year. And beyond that, I like to leave it somewhat open-ended because that allows us to flex um, in different directions when opportunities arise. But I, but I also understand that a lot of people want structure and that's both clients, internal folks, like people want to know and they want to have guardrails. It's like, there's some like safety net around, around this, this concept of providing, um, you know, a vision for a company. H how do you think about that and balance those two things? Yeah, it's, it's funny. Cause I think that there, so the internal versus external conversation is a very important one. I also think that, you know, there, there's a lot of people who have very strong opinions about this when it comes to positioning, right? So a lot of like thought leaders out there around marketing, you know, will tell you position for what you are today, because that's the thing that people can buy and, you know, don't worry so much about painting the picture for the future. Um, I having now been through this, you know, with ignition, I actually, I used to be in that camp and I think now like I, I very much understand the importance of painting a picture for the future. Um, and, and I think the reason for that is if you look at our product as it stood a year ago, you know, we were on sales calls with people and they're like, okay, you guys just look like a project management tool and it's like a worse project management tool than the project management tool I have today. <laughs> and so nobody's really interested in the thing. But when I started talking to them about no, look, look, like, yes, today we're a product, project management tool, but like we are building in these research tools. We're building in these communication tools. We're building in these measurement tools that you don't have in, in other project management platforms today. People started to really get it and, and it started to click as to what we were building. And people started actually coming to us and investing in using our product, not because of where it was today, but because of where it would be tomorrow. And because they were like, look, I really understand your vision for this this seems like something that I very much want. I'm willing to like grind through some suboptimal experiences for the you know next couple of months in order to then get the pay the payoff, like when you guys actually build this future stuff that you're talking about. So I think that it's important to inspire external customers around like where their life could look a year or two or three from now if they end up using your product. Um, and I think it's, it's especially important internally though. So I think externally, like you, it sort of depends on the thing that you're building. If you're clearly delivering really differentiated 10X value today, you probably don't need to focus as much on the like future vision. But you know, if, if the real value of your product is where it's going to be, you know, six months down the road, I think it's, it's, that's almost more important than talking about what you're doing now. Um, Internally, though, I think you have like well, what we do is I just try and communicate both at all times. And I try to be very, very crystal clear 
when we're specking out a feature, look, this is the today state of this, and this is the tomorrow state of this, because it's really critical for engineering implementation. Like when they're actually building things, if you only communicate the, what do I want it to do today? Because you're optimizing for speed and you're optimizing for minimal scope and you're optimizing for, you know, whatever you can build the fastest, then you end up having to, to recreate the whole thing from scratch down the road when you want to update it to the future version. So our product, like one of the big hurdles that we ran into was we originally built the product in pretty modular fashion, but there was no real concept of connectivity between those different modules. So we had things like personas that you could build, but then those personas were no better than like a deck sitting somewhere because they weren't really connected to the other objects in the platform. And the the reality is if I had at that time been communicating what our future product architecture was going to look like because of all these different things that we were going to build, then it would have been really easy for our dev team to have built that in the first place with that connectivity baked in. And so, you know, we would have saved a lot of time. So, I, you know, I think internally, especially, it's important to, to focus on communicating both and being clear on, like, what's today, what's tomorrow. And it, it also just helps inspire everybody. Like, everybody gets really excited thinking about, like, what the possibilities are that they could have down the road. And it draws out really good ideas from them. You know, people are like, yeah. oh, look, like, you were talking about this future vision for this thing. Hey, I just had a really cool idea about how we could build that and this other thing that we could possibly build alongside that. Yeah, well said. Um, and you're making me question myself a bit, which is good. I guess when I when I think about providing the vision, I absolutely see the value of showing down the road what the value is going to be to client customer and internally providing this like north star view of this. This is where we will inevitably get to. Like this is the the higher outcome, I guess it's the the details in the middle that um, like, how are we going to get there? I guess. Mm-hmm. And, and you do need structure, I think internally to, to bring folks along for the ride and make sure they're contributing and excited. But I guess I struggle with that middle. I think I'm the type of person who gets excited by ambiguity and, and likes the fact that like, this has not been written. And so we can write it. <laughs> I don't know, yeah. but, but I totally recognize that that doesn't work for so many people. And so, no, and, you know, and I think you're right. Like, you know, you, you don't want to chart the path there, right? You want to chart the end result yeah, that's on the yeah. horizon. Like you want to show people what's the island you're going to down the road, but you know, you don't know how you're going to get there. And that's the part that you leave open for people to figure out. So, you know, like we wrote at the very earliest days of days of ignition, like we wrote a whole vision doc that, you know, was, we used as our, our investor memo. And that kind of mirrors the manifesto that we've got published on our blog. And that paints the picture for like, what can we be eventually? Right. And then you're like trying to figure out what are we today? And you just need to be able to give people enough context so they can marry those two things together in their head and reconcile how they're going to interact. Right. All right. So similar vein here, when you're speaking with customers, prospects, the market, How do you try to balance feeling very different? So I I chatted about this with Jason Oakley from Clue about creating a new category. And, you know, there's a fine line there of feeling very, very different and unique while also sort of like falling in line with what's recognizable, what budgets are already carved out for. And so for you, we talked about how you might be comparing Ignition against a road mapping tool maybe product man- uh, project management, but pro- hopefully not. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you think about positioning Ignition as being its own sort of maybe new category, feeling very different while also, you know, trying to secure budget and feeling comfortable? <laughs> yeah, it's it's tough. You know, I think um, category creation is very, very challenging. And we're running into, like, we've run into that with Ignition. You know, it's it's, you have to, like, carve out new line items in people's budgets, which just is a much more challenging sales process. Um, and it requires a lot more buyer education. And I think, you know, our we got pulled really hard in the latter part of last year, the, you know, early part of, of this, or sorry, the latter part of 2021 and the early part of 22 um, into building the familiar stuff, right? Like there ended up being a lot more table stakes 
features that we needed to build around project management, which originally we didn't even want to build any project management tooling. And, you know, basically like all of our customers were like, well, today I'm managing this in a project management system. So in order to replace this, I need mm. a project management tool. And so, you know, I, th I think we had to build that stuff and we kind of followed customers lead on table stakes stuff because customers tend to like really know what they, what they want when it comes to the table stakes um, because of what they're using today. And I think we, we tend to like carve out probably, I would say 40 to 50% of our engineering time on building that stuff. And then the rest of it, we focus on finding ways to build really powerful, differentiated, you know, new things that feel a little bit more unique to us. And, you know, I, I think for our product, the nice thing has been a lot of what we build, the differentiation is in the way that all this stuff is bundled. It's the fact that you are able to do all this in a single platform and not have to go jump between tools and not have to pay for four different platforms in order to do this stuff. And so, you know, we've been able to lean in on familiar interaction paradigms and like familiar uh, kind of best practices on like when you're doing project management, like what do the best project management tools do? And we haven't really needed to like build differentiation into our project management functionality because it's not the thing that really sets us apart. The thing that sets us apart is how our plans interact with our research and how we handle communication and sharing. And, you know, th that those areas, you just need to focus on education. You need to focus on really, really good onboarding to introduce people to the value and introduce people to how to interact with your product. Um, and so we've been focusing a lot on that over the last part, the, the back part of last year. Yeah, I think that's a good framework to use. It seems like you're trying to basically make sure that you're checking the boxes on um, the use cases that you're going to have to replace with these existing platforms while not making that sort of like the vision and narrative of the product, which is, which is very different and unique. That makes sense. What's the next big thing that you're working on for ignition? Yeah. So the next big thing that we're working on, um, we're actually playing around with GPT three right now um, as, as everybody is. Um, but, you know, I think we're going to do some really cool stuff around specifically search within the product, um, which is really going to feed into sales enablement. So if you think about like what our product houses, it houses all of your product documentation, it houses all of your go-to-market planning, it houses all of your personas, your competitive data, all of that stuff lives within one place. And the magic of a tool like GPT-3 is that it'll enable us to actually do contextual search within the product where we can, a salesperson, for example, or a support person can come into Ignition and say, hey, how do I talk about our payroll product to a finance person. And what we'll be able to pull out is a whole description wow. of the, the messaging and like, what's the script that you use to talk about this thing, taking into account all the different features that have been launched recently to support that broader product, the persona information that you've got, the competitive like selling points that are important, and then also give them links to all the different assets that are relevant and the most popular assets that are relevant to talk about that product to that customer. So we're going to be able to give you really, really powerful context that is pulling from this big repository of knowledge that you've built within Ignition. Um, so I think that's probably the, the coolest thing that's, that's upcoming. Um, we have some nice, you know, in, nice new integrations with, for, with CRMs coming as well, but um, that's the one that, that keeps me uh, keeps me excited every day. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, it's really it, it's almost like it's a whole new front end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's like you know basically anybody. It's functionally like ChatGPT three, but or ChatGPT. But if you were to take ChatGPT and apply it to your company's specific context, right? That's that's wild. So they they won't even have to go into the platform or go into their emails. Yeah, exactly. You'll be able to do it, you know, straight from straight from Slack, for example. What's it like working with OpenAI? Actually, is it is it a pretty easy process to begin integrations with GPT? Yeah, it's the integration itself is super straightforward. I mean, the the, the real challenge is in you know engineering the way that you're asking the questions and the way that you're managing kind of the inputs into into the platform. You know, it's already trained really well to be able to you know write effectively and we have you know AI, we've had ai copywriting baked into ignition for a while and that you know was a day of work for us to to get it spun up and put into the product because it was you know kind of an already existing paradigm 
you know, I, I think um, the, the challenge is how do you actually create valuable in, inputs to it? So how do you structure your data in a way that GPT can take advantage of because there's pretty limited um, character counts. So, you know, you can only ingest and import and output, output so much content. So, you know, you need to get smart about the way that you're actually structuring that stuff. You need to get smart about training it and not fine tuning it too much work to the point where, you know, it's giving a very rigid output that doesn't really actually meet the questions that are being asked of it. So it's but by and large, you know, it's a, it's a incredible product. And like, I, I think, you know, all of us are going to be out of a job in, in 10 years, but <laughs> so true. It, over. it feels like Skynet. <laughs> I wonder if there's going to be, do you think there's going to be like a subject matter, matter expert in integrating with, open AI APIs. I honestly think every company is going to have somebody who just like all they do all day is think about ways to like infuse GPT into the, into their company's business processes. Um, it's wild. It's, but I, I don't think you really need like a lot of expertise to do it, to be honest. You know, the, the API is very straightforward. I, you can even use GPT three to tell you how to integrate with GPT three <laughs> and like write the code for you. <laughs> oh man. Crazy. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, equally uh, excited and scared to see what happens with GPT and just everything open AI, honestly. Yeah. Um, so before we go, I wanted to dig a little bit into leadership and, and habits, given sort of your position as a, a founder in a tech company and, and sort of risk it, taking on risk, essentially. So mm-hmm. what would you say to folks who have historically struggled with making big, bold decisions and um, really struggle with making themselves uncomfortable. What would you tell them? Yeah, it's, I think like, I mean, I've already always had like a pretty innate risk-seeking attitude. And I think that's true of like most entrepreneurs. But um, I think really the the framework that you laid out with the, with the Amazon structure is the right way to think about it. It's like the one-way door, two-way door thing. The reality is like most big, bold leaps that you're going to make, you know, going out and starting a company. It's a two-way door. If you fail, you're out a year, two years, three years, like however much time you spent on that. And, you know, maybe you end up, depending on how you actually fund it, depending on how you, how you're structuring business, like, you know, you could be out very little money or a lot of money, depending on, on what you do. But, you know, there's, there's ways where you can mitigate that risk as well by doing the upfront research and being able to, you know, get really comfortable with, that it's the right decision. But, you know, I think the, the, you almost just have to do it. You know, you, you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable and you have to fail a couple of times to really build that muscle. Like I've definitely had failures in my career in the past. And, you know, the, the only thing that they've done, they feel they hurt for a little bit and they, you know, make me feel embarrassed or, you know, whatever, whatever those outcomes are at the, at the time. But you quickly realize in, in hindsight, like once you've been through one or two or three of those failures that, they don't really hurt you that bad and you can always come back from them. And, you know, you're, it's a long game and, you know, life, you can run your own race. And so you just kind of need to do it if it's what you really want. And so, you know, I think for, in, in my case, I just try and like tell myself daily, look, worst case scenario, it's not that bad. And, you know, best case scenario, the upside is huge. So, you know, that it's worth taking those kind of like high impact chances. Yeah. Very rarely is failure just a catastrophe. Yeah. If it's not going to kill you, it's it's literally that if it doesn't kill you, it just makes you stronger. You know, if it doesn't kill you, you learned a lot and you can probably then go be better at it the next time you do it. And it's also, it's somewhat ironic in that the fear of failure often just drives success. I can't remember. There's been a number of folks who say this, but if you're, if you're very, very fearful of what might, come ahead, you will put in an, an absorbent amount of effort in making sure that you're successful, which is kind of an interesting paradox there. I definitely see parallels in that in the way that yeah. my, my psychology has worked throughout my life. Yes, <laughs> me too. Paranoia can drive success. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what do you think the, the most important characteristics are for a leader to have outside of paranoia? Um. So I think it's, it's decide, like one is decisiveness, being able to collect inputs and quickly parse signal from noise and then make a, come to a decision and be 
again, like, you know, related to the be comfortable being uncomfortable, it's, it's, you know, make a decision and commit to it and be willing to roll it back if you need to, but, you know, just take action. And, you know, I think like great leaders, I've seen this throughout my career, like great leaders lead from the front and, you know, they're, they're willing to get their hands dirty and they just go out and start doing things and they take action. Um, I think the other big one is, you know, be capable of kind of paint, inspiring people through the ability to paint a bigger vision, you know, and, and really paint a picture for what that thing means to that per to, you know, whoever your audience is. Um, so, you know, I, I think like those two things, if you have them, everything else kind of falls into place. You know, you, I've seen great leaders who are very, uns who are very structured in the way that they approach things and they're rigorous planners. I've seen great leaders who are just kind of shooting from the hip and yep. they just kind of are winging it. And those characteristics don't really matter. Um, it's really just, you know, are you able to make decisions quickly, take action and, and, and inspire, you know, others to follow you. I agree with all those. The The inspiring one is interesting because you can be a leader that inspires through painting a vision, like you mentioned, of this, you know, fantastic vision that everyone can get excited and, and get around. Or you can inspire by being exceptional at what you do and mm -hmm. sort of like lead by example. And I've definitely seen leaders fall into, you know, both of those buckets and, and with equal success. So it's interesting and you kind of have to lean into what you are most capable of. Yeah. So I, mean, I, I think you see a lot of like technical founders there, they fall in the ladder bucket and they're just so good at what they do that everybody wants to be a part of whatever they're working on. And you know, you see a lot of like founders who come from sales backgrounds that fall in the other, in the other bucket where like they're painting this big picture, but you know, they may not actually be able to do a lot of the product building, but you know, they've, they've got such a clear vision for what it's going to be that, you know, it excites others to, to jump in alongside them. Right. Well, Derek, thanks so much for your time. I know we're, we're coming up at the hour mark. You've been very generous. I really appreciate you coming on. I always enjoy our, our chat. How can folks try ignition? I think you can go on and, and, and try for free. Is that right? Yeah, totally. It's free to free to sign up and you can go and plan your first launch um, straight in the platform. You get full access to everything. Um, and it's at haveignition.com. Um, and you can also go uh, check us out on LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, my personal Twitter is uh, at osbad03. Um, but find me, on, find me on LinkedIn and reach out. Awesome. Appreciate it. Thanks for the time and uh, hope to catch up soon. Yeah, likewise. And that's a wrap on this episode of Embracing Erosion. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, if you have any feedback or comments or would like to have certain guests on the show, please feel free to reach out to me directly. My email is devin at fluviomarketing.com. And if you want to acquire additional product marketing resources, please do visit fluviomarketing.com slash resources. Until next time.